Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Wendell Berry wrote once of a hillside on his farmland nestled into a Kentucky River Valley. This particular hillside had, through inattentive and exploitative misuse, been exhausted of its topsoil. The methods of agriculture used there had been inappropriate to the topography, and as Barry now saw, my understanding of what is best for this land is the tragic understanding of hindsight, the awareness that I've been taught what was here by the loss of it. Our lives, too, are meant to be cultivated, like the land, and aided by good rhythms into flourishing. I think this is what the role of religion really is, what spirituality is about, to nudge us into paths of goodness that make for peace and that bring deep restoration to our souls. But too often, we look back with hindsight and see that religion or the church has taught us rhythms and values that disorient us from ourselves, that wear us thin, that make our lives shrink. It's easy to do. I mean, there's so many ways to attempt to motivate and move people, to get them to be what we think they're supposed to be. And so few of those ways of motivating people are good for people. So here at Pearl, we return regularly to talk about our rhythms, sacred story, common table, and we believe that these two things are meant to animate our lives by divine love. In the fourth century, the bishop Athanasius pictured salvation through this metaphor of being united to God. To be saved was to have your life united with God's life, to draw energy and creativity from the very life of God. And what we needed to be saved from wasn't sin, but rather we needed to be saved from our alienation, from this divine animation, this love that would move us. Our story and our table aim to be rhythms that resituate us within divine love as our animation. So what does that mean, to be animated by divine love? We say it each week, week in, week out, animated by divine love. Well, as you may have noticed, love is really hard to define, right? I love my husband. I love peanut butter. I love soccer, watching it, not playing it. I love coffee. I love my dog, right? I mean, I love God. <laughs> are, are these all on a par? What is love and what is being animated by divine love? Well, rather than trying to give a definition this morning, I wanted to invite us to sit with three poems and three stories that give us a glimpse into what love is and how it animates us. It's common in the church to hear questions about our mission, our purpose. What are we 
here for? What drives us? And by this we mean, what, what are your goals? What are you aiming at? What are you trying to achieve? Why are we here together on a Sunday morning or as a community? And I think that while that conversation is well-intentioned, talking about goals, what we want to achieve, where we want to go, what we want the, the church to do in the world, I think that we can miss in that conversation that you can have a really great and wonderful goal and then animate it with energies that crush us. Uh, and leave us like Barry's Hill, wasted and without energy to produce life. The first poem, Love Number Three by George Herbert. The 17th century Anglican priest and poet George Herbert gives us an image of these kind of diverse animations in his poem, Love Number Three. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. In this poem, in rapid succession, Herbert portrays the soul being moved by four different kinds of animations. First, shame. This pervasive sense of being wrong, which animates us to hide. A guest I answered worthy to be here. I cannot look on thee, right? I'm not good enough. And then, uh, shame being answered, he moves then to guilt, which is a fixation on our failures, and that animates us to do penances, to try and pay the cost. I've marred my eyes. And then, obligation. Having received grace and goodness, he decides that he must pay it back. Oh, then I'll serve. Uh, you know, if, if I've been shown grace, I'll have to pay it back. Obligation. And these are deeply common motivations. And we see them all the time in the church. We're motivated to try to be better by feelings of shame. We're told in a sermon that we ought to feel guilty and do better. Or that God has done so much for us. What have we done for God lately? Obligation. And we could add to them fear, anger, obsessive desire. We have to be animated by something. And the rhythms that family and government and culture tend to train us into, they tend to cultivate one of these animations to move us forward. Shame, guilt, obligation, fear, anger, desire. But Herbert turns to the last and a quite different kind of animation, divine love. You must sit down and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. To be animated by divine love is to be invited into a world where first, before all else, before any animation or effort on our part, the divine is already offered in self-giving to us. Which brings us to our first story. You must sit down and taste my meat. Herbert points us here to Eucharist. 
In chapter 26 of Matthew, we read, while they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Throughout our weeks, we are offered many animating stories, fearful and angering news calling us to action, advertisements stirring up our desire, even religion, religious stories playing on our guilt and our shame. But we return here, week after week, to this table, and we encounter in our story and table a different reality a story which situates us in a world where we're invited to be animated by love. Because before any movement of our own, the divine offers to us food and drink, nutrient, energy, cultivation, before sending us out into the world for creative goodness. A meal and a table, both sustenance and intimacy, hospitality and provision. This story subverts all our other animations. Like the love of Herbert's poem, Jesus sweeps aside all failure, all sense of inadequacy, and and everyone is invited. Judas is here, Peter is here, the disciples who will flee are here, and to all of them and every part of them, Jesus says, take, eat, let my self-giving love be your animation. Now, we have to make a really important clarification here because we're really, we're really tricky creatures. Have you noticed this? We're, we're really tricky creatures. Having heard a sacred story that tells us we're invited by divine love, we are very likely then to start to think that it is we who have to now shift our animation. We'll take it on as a project. So for example, oh, divine love, I should feel love. Okay, well, I ought to trust that. How terrible of me that I don't. Oh, I ought to believe that. I will try harder. I wish I felt that. What is wrong with me? I'm not, a, this, is, this one is me. I'm not sure I understand it. I will go read more books. <laughs> oh yes, I'll stir up my feelings and then I'll, then I'll trust God. Then I'll feel it. You see, whatever animations that we tend to have running, whether it's fear or guilt or shame or obligation, these things we've been trained into in our family, in our culture, and our lives, that'll tend to be the animation by which we will try to move ourselves to be animated by love. We can so easily hear the invitation of Christ through the lens that we already know so well. Guilt, shame, self-recrimination, trying harder, and so on. But you are not a machine. You are not invited to divine love and then expected to live there perfectly always. There's a journey here. And it's not a journey that we plan for, but one that happens to us. The second poem. This is The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as a unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still 
Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing. Invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. You see, the work of shifting ourselves from one animation to another is, it's really beyond us. And we need to be sent guides along the path. And these guides will often appear as a crowd of sorrows or a storm of violence clearing us out. Because in the shift of animation, our old animations, our guilt and our shame and our fear and our violence, they have to stop working. They have to fail to move us anymore. And that can feel like a death. What drove us forward loses its appeal, its magnetic force, and that can be disorienting. These seasons where we wake up and we feel like we don't know what's going on, we don't know where we're going, and life is kind of falling apart. Rumi encourages us to see that as a guest, a guide, pulling us forward. Normally when this happens, we assume we've failed. God has failed. Our projects have fallen to the floor in pieces. And how will we move forward? Which brings us to our second story from John 11. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also were weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. In this story, Mary and her sister Martha and even her dead brother Lazarus are being invited to live in the horizon of divine love. But that's not how it looks to them. Uh, at the moment, what Mary, Mary and Martha see is death. Lazarus, frankly, sees nothing. It's too late. And Mary tells Jesus so. It's too late. Life has failed. Jesus has failed. God has failed. The worst has happened. Everything fell apart. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't chide Mary and Martha for unbelief. He doesn't tell them to do better, believe harder, trust more in love. He weeps. He enters their pain. And then, resurrecting Lazarus, he demonstrates that divine love is even now not at an end. You see, becoming animated by divine love is not a flick of a switch. It's not a project we pull off on our own devices. It's a slow, steady dawning of vision. A vision which sees everything as it is. Our pain remains real pain. Our losses require grieving. Death is mourned. And yet, this vision insists, even here, love is at work, hovering over our chaos, glimmering among the shadows, and making all things new. The third poem. This is an excerpt from the, the writings of Julian of Norwich. In this, God showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed, and it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered, it is all that was made. 
I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for its littleness. And I was answered, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so all things have their beginning by the love of God. And for the tender love that our Lord has to all that shall be saved, he comforts readily and sweetly, saying, It is truth that sin is the cause of pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How do we come to be animated by divine love? How do we have that vision of the world where what moves us is our sense that all shall be well? And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Well, we keep company with weeping Mary and failing Peter. We doubt and we hesitate with Herbert. We greet the storms and unexpected visitors with Rumi. We wonder at the fragile littleness of our existence with Julian. In short, we live. We live in rhythms of sacred story and common table. Story and table, story and table. We show up and we hear the story and we sit at the table with all of our fear and all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our desire and all the doubt that we can muster. And we hold them up to this light of story and table. And slowly, we are as surprised as anyone when we start to relax. We start to release our fear and our shame and our guilt and to hope that perhaps all shall be well. And all shall be well, and all things shall be very well, because divine love holds and hovers over all things. Which brings us to our last story from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the Old Testament world, the sea was the endless source of trembling and unease in the ancient world. It was a roiling, forbidding, fickle place which no human could explore to its depths. The ancients spoke of it as the home of the dragon, chaos, leviathan, a weltering waste. It was heedless of human life, impassive, the gray, icy refusal to ignore, to acknowledge our belonging and the denial of love. And over this roiling sea, the spirit, the breath of God, was brooding and bringing forth life. And so with us, the roiling chaos of our fear and our shame and our guilt and desire is the very place where the spirit of God is hovering, speaking peace until we grow calm, still, and become witnesses to divine love. Now, this journey, this journey from animations that crush and diminish our lives to an animation of divine love that hovers over all our chaos and brings forth resurrection life, this is what God is up to in the world, what God is doing with each one of us. It's another way to speak about what we sometimes describe here at Pearl as God's dream of peace, God's dream of peace for each one of us. And it is emphatically God's dream for you. When the movements of our day become animated by the deep knowledge that God loves, welcomes, upholds, joins, and invites us into the triune life, then whatever we do, 
whatever we're up to becomes gift and blessing to the world around us because we can then unfold. We can show up with all of our creative flourishing, which we were made for. Over the last month, the oversight team has been sharing their dreams for Pearl. And if I have a dream for Pearl, this is it. This is my dream for us. That we begin to trust deeply, deeply, that there is a good, sacred story of which we are a part. That we will trust that that story points us to a common table at which all of humanity, all of humanity is invited to belong with God. And that that would move us that the animation of divine love would become the only animation strong enough and rich enough and good enough to fuel a life as precious and wonderfully made as yours. So there's one last poem, but it's not a poem that we read. It's a poem that we enact together week after week after week. We gather each Sunday. We sing songs and psalms. We hear readings and we ponder them together our sacred story. We respond in silence and song and confession, and at the climax, the central movement of this poem, we come to this table, our common table. And having been welcomed to this table, we pray over our lives and our world. We sing the doxology to invite all creatures to delight in this good triune God, and then we are sent forward into the world as a blessing animated by divine love. Like Wendell Berry's hillside, we have all suffered under animations that have worn us thin, left us depleted. And so together as a community, we sit under this poem, story, table, divine love, week after week, season after season, year after year, while the Spirit hovers over our chaos and gently, patiently cultivates our life. Will you pray with me? Divine love, meet us in our fear, shame, guilt, anger, doubt, and hope. May we discover ourselves animated more and more by your love as we gather around story and table. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.